Uh, well, good morning. Uh, welcome to Crossview. My name is Chris, if you don't know me. Uh, thanks for worshiping uh, here uh, with us, and a special welcome to those who are uh, worshiping at the Wood County Jail this morning. So glad you're able to join us. Well, I don't know if you know this. Uh, you, you probably do, because you live here. But uh, Wisconsin Rapids is an amazing place to live. Sometimes we forget that. But I'm going to remind you this morning, Wisconsin Rapids is an amazing place to live. We have uh, so much going for us in this city, right? We have uh, the river flowing through town. There's walking or hiking trails all over. Lake Wazicha is uh, just a skip away. Well, we're, we're an hour or two drive or less from places that people in cities vacation to or buy vacation homes in, right? It's this great place to be. And one of the best parts about living in central Wisconsin and Wisconsin Rapids is summers, right? If you think about summer activities, uh, anything you can think of, we probably have it, right? You can go on walks, runs, you can hike, you can go for bike rides, you can go out on a boat, you can enjoy the river, fishing, hunting, uh, you can go, you know, on the lake, go swimming, wh whatever, you name it, we've probably got a chance to do it here. Well, do you remember uh, growing up when you spent time at the lake or in a pool? Uh, what was the competition that always broke out if you were there with your family or friends? Who could hold their breath under the water the longest, right? That, that, was, that was always what happened. And it would go like this, right? Someone, uh, usually a parent, hopefully supervising you, but probably often not. Uh, someone would count, right? One, two, three. <gasps> You take that deep breath in, you'd plunge under the water, and you'd hold your breath for as long as you possibly could. And slowly but surely, your lungs would start to burn. And after a little while, you started to realize, well, if I blow some bubbles out, that's going to help me stay under even longer. And then you, you get to that point where it's, it's just excruciating, right? And then you blow all the air out and hold it a little bit longer until you can't take it anymore. And then you explode above the surface and you take in breath after breath of sweet oxygen, right? Usually, uh, when that happened, you uh, found out that your older sibling uh, crushed your time under the water, right? That's how it went. I'm the older sibling, so I always beat my younger siblings. You can confirm with them sometime. Well, the book of Romans has sort of been like the pain of holding our breath underwater up to this point. All right, Paul has confronted the Jews and the Gentiles with their sin. He said to you and me, because of your sin, you're in big trouble. You're more sinful than you realize, and your best attempts to do anything on your own are pointless. Listen to some of the things he said so far. In chapter 1, uh, verse 18, he said, The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness. Verse 21, For although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him. Verse 24, Therefore God gave them over to the sinful desires of their hearts. Chapter 129, they became filled with every kind of wickedness, greed, evil, or wickedness, evil, greed, and depravity. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice. They're gossips, slanderers, God-haters, insolent, arrogant, and boastful. They invent all ways of doing evil. They disobey their parents. They have no understanding, no fidelity, no love, no mercy. Although they know God's righteous decree that those who do such things deserve death, they not only continue to do these very things, but also approve of those who practice them. 
He goes on in chapter 2. He says, but because of your stubbornness and your unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath against yourself for the day of God's wrath. Uh, 2.24, he says, God's name is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. Last week, uh, we saw Paul quotes the Old Testament, and he, and he says, there is no one righteous, not even one. There's no one who understands, no one who seeks God. All have turned away and together become worthless. No one who does good, no fear of God before their eyes. And then in verses 19 and 20, just before our text for this morning, he kind of sums it up. Right? He says, now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be silenced and the whole world held accountable to God. Therefore, no one will be declared righteous in God's sight by the works of the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of our sin. Where the law shines its light, sin, our sinfulness, is exposed. That's rough, right? Because not only are our heads underwater and our lungs are starting to burn, but now we feel the terrible hand of our funny friend holding us under as we, as we gasp, as we think, oh my goodness, I can't hold on any longer. And they're laughing as we squirm, desperate to come up for air. The accusations have been leveled in these first chapters, and as we hold up this text like a mirror, we see ourselves. We see our own faces shining in it. We rightly hear the law calling out guilty. Well, it's a good thing this letter doesn't end here, because the breath of fresh air is coming. And that breath of fresh air is not like the smoke and pollen-filled air that we've been breathing for the last few weeks around here that causes all of our allergies to flare up. Now, this air is pure mountain air. There's fresh fallen snow all around, and as you suck in that sweet oxygen, the smell of sweet pines fills your nose, and you're refreshed to your very core, both now and in eternity. As we open up God's Word together, would you pray with me? God, you are better to us than we deserve. Uh, you've given us your word, and it's full of truth, and it's full of life. We ask that as we encounter you this morning through it, that you would be here, opening our hearts and our minds to your truth, to who you are, and to what you've done on our behalf. Spirit, be among us, teaching us and encouraging us. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, if you've got your Bible with you this morning, would you open up to Romans chapter 3, verses 21 to 31? If you don't have one, uh, there's a Bible in the chair somewhere in your row in front of you. Uh, it's on page 913. Um, if you brought your own and you don't know where it is, it's, I don't know, five-sixths of the way through, most of the way through um, the book. And if it's Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, Romans, if you hit Corinthians, you've gone too far. Your Romans journal uh, will work as well. If you didn't pick up a Romans journal and you want one, uh, I believe we still have some of those available, so you can contact Tina in the office about that. Otherwise, uh, this is available digitally as well, uh, and whatever translation you want to use there is just fine. Well, here's what I want you to hear this morning. If you're going to tune out for the rest of the time and scroll your phone, that's fine. I'll, I probably won't notice. Um, but here's what I want you to hear before you tune out. In Christ, you have all you need for life and salvation, and it is all given to you for free. In Christ, you have all you need for life and salvation, and it is all given to you for free. 
The gospel is often talked about as a beautiful, glittering diamond with many facets. And this morning, I want to look at three of those facets in the diamond in this text together. First, facet number one, Christ justifies anyone by faith. Look back with me at verses 21 to 24. Paul writes, But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known, to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There is no difference between Jew and Gentile, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. Look at the first two words of verse 21 with me. In preparing for this uh, sermon, I looked at, no joke, like a dozen different translations because I wanted to see how they handle these two words. And they all say the same thing. They all say, but now. But now. And these are perhaps two of the most powerful transition words in the whole book of Romans and maybe in all of human history. But now. Paul just said, you were dead in your sin. No one does good. No one can be declared righteous by works of the law. But now... God did something. But now, there is good news. This isn't just a shift in the letter that Paul's writing, though it is that. It's so much more, right? Paul is writing of a dramatic shift in salvation history. You were hopeless. You were dead in your sin. But now, God has showed up and done something about it. Think about it like this. Imagine with me you're over at the Washington Elementary uh, soccer fields and for whatever reason you decided to sign up for a soccer league and maybe you never played competitive soccer or organized soccer and maybe you're a little out of shape and you're thinking, why did I sign up for this? And your Saturday morning has started off early and you're huffing and puffing and you're all sweaty and it's been like five minutes into a 90-minute game and, and your team is overmatched, right? You're, you're down three or four goals and you've still got like 40 minutes to go until halftime and then another 45 after that. And you're thinking, why would I do this with my Saturday? This is a terrible idea. And then uh, up drives this fancy car, right? And out steps uh, one of Pastor Dan's favorite soccer players, Portuguese legend Cristiano Ronaldo. And this guy, this legend, wants to be on your team. Your Saturday stunk, right? You were going to get crushed by people that you're playing against or whatever, and uh, it was shaping up to be a real bad Saturday. And then he showed up. But now. Well, that's what happened here. But it's a little more important than a wreck soccer game. right? People were stuck in their sin. The law was given, and it was a mercy. Right? It was held up as a mirror so that humanity could see her sin, but it was always helpless to provide salvation. Where the law spoke, people failed over and over and over and over again. Right? The law says, don't do this, and what do we do? We, well, I want to do that, so I'm going to do it anyway. Or the law says, do this, and we say, ah, I don't really feel like it, so I'm not going to do that. We're sinners by nature and by choice, and we were stuck. But now... But now God, full of mercy and grace and compassion and love, showed up and changed the game. Paul writes that now this righteousness of God has been made known apart from the law, and it's given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. 
Think about this dramatic thing that's happening here, right? Paul has just told us in these first chapters that the law has showed us our deep, dark sin, and we're all standing there exposed for who we really are, right? The people that are on the inside, the ones that we see that nobody really knows about, but, but we're keenly aware of how dark we are on the inside sometimes, right? God knows that, and the law exposes that for the sin that it is. And if we're honest with ourselves, and we let Scripture tell us what's right and wrong, then none of us can in good conscience, compl- none of us can in good conscience claim to be remotely good, right? Just a pause. Uh, some of you might be thinking, well, Chris, what are you talking about? I am good. I, I do good things. I, I love my kids, and I, I, I love my neighbor, and I'm generally kind, and I work hard at my job, and I, I try to be you know, good, and I stop to help people change their tires on the highway or, or whatever it is. And that's true. You, you do do good things, right? Empowered by the Spirit, we, we walk out and we, we do good actions. But that's not the kind of good that Paul's talking about here. Paul's talking about being morally perfect, spiritually perfect, having never sinned against a holy God. And he says, none of us can do that, right? In, in a single sin, we're totally separated from God, the law, has showed us that. And so God gave us that law, right, in his mercy to show us our sinful nature and our helplessness to do anything about it. And now, he says, apart from the law, apart from the law that was only ever able to expose sin, righteousness is available to you. In other words, the law accomplished its mission, And it showed you that you were a sinner and now God is pouring out more mercy on you by extending you an offer for righteousness. Two important questions pop up immediately about that righteousness, right? Who is it for and how do I get it? Because if it's it's available, is it it for me? And if so, then, then how do I get it? Well, good news on both fronts, right? Because Paul says that the righteousness is given through faith in Jesus to all who believe. Who can be saved? Paul says, anyone. Anyone can be saved. And that's true. Anyone can be saved if they place their faith in Jesus. Anyone. You. If you're here this morning or if you're watching online, you can be saved. If you're wondering if your life can be rescued from darkness, if you can be delivered from hopelessness and emptiness and meaninglessness and from your striving for approval and from the impossible task of trying to do better on your own and from the terrifying reality of not knowing what happens after you die. No matter who you are, no matter what you've done up to this point in your life, there is mercy and grace and forgiveness available for you. No ifs, ands, or buts. You, yes, you can experience new life in Jesus Christ. Whether you've got a churchy background and you've been coming for a while and it's just never really clicked and never really made sense, like, what is this Jesus thing all about? Maybe that's you. Or maybe you thought, man, if I walk into that church this morning, uh, it's going to burst into flames because that place can't handle me, right? God wants to rescue you wherever you are, and he's made a way to do it. So, So if it's available for anyone, well, then the next important question is how, right? How do I get that mercy? Here... Here's what's maybe more amazing than the fact that anyone can be saved, right? It's that this gift of salvation, which has been given to all, for all have sinned and fallen short, Paul says that we're all justified freely by his grace 
through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. There's two really important words here, freely and received. Freely and received. People are saved, they're justified, they're declared right and granted forgiveness freely by his grace. It's a gift that's meant to be received, not earned by faith. It's not earned, right? Faith is not some work that we do, though we, we often think of faith as like a pseudo-work, right? We, we think of it as this intense attitude of surrender. And if I can just get my attitude to a place of surrendering strong enough, well, then God will have to grant me forgiveness. Surely he'll save me. But that word freely here that Paul uses means something more like without cause. It's totally and completely unwarranted, unearned, and done for us on no merit of our own. We're not trying to muster something up inside of ourselves so that we, that we can call faith and in doing so earn salvation, right? That's not how it works. Tim Keller says it like this. He says, faith is simply the attitude of coming to God with empty hands. When a child asks his mother for something he needs, trusting that she will give it, his asking does not merit anything. It is merely the way he receives his mother's generosity. This is crucial because if you come to think that your belief is the cause of your salvation, you will stop looking at Christ and start looking at your faith. When you see doubts, it will rattle you. When you don't feel it quite as clearly or excitedly, it will worry you. What has happened? You've turned your faith into a work. Faith is, the, is only the instrument by which you receive your salvation, not the cause of your salvation. If you don't see this, you will think you have something to boast about. The reason I'm saved is because I put my faith in Jesus. This is a subtle misunderstanding which cuts away our assurance and boosts our pride. And verse 27 says the gospel leaves no basis for boasting. Are you tracking here? Salvation is for anyone, and all you have to do to receive it is go before God with empty hands, recognizing that you need him to save you. What kind of love is that? What, what kind of God is this that loves us like this? Not only are we more deeply sinful than we could ever imagine, and we're completely helpless to do anything about it, and we willfully reject God on a regular basis, and yet he freely justifies us. He freely justifies us. Don't miss how profound this aspect of the gospel is just because it's familiar. Right, we get trapped in the old, uh, same old way of thinking. Right? We think we have to do something. We have to have our list of goods outweigh our bads, or we have to behave morally, or we have to unlock this some secret spiritual code by our behavior, and on and on. But that's not how it works with God. Pastor Alistair Begg writes this in one of his devotions. He says, such scandalous grace can be a stumbling block. We want to do something about our sorry condition. We want to bring something to the table and contribute to our salvation. Before we become Christians, we want to offer our sense of moral goodness. And after we've been Christians for a while, we often want to offer our Christian obedience. But the truth of the matter is that we all come before the cross empty-handed. We couldn't hope to add even a single ounce to our worth before God. There is no reason to pat yourself on the back and every reason to praise the Lord Jesus. For it is when you realize that you have nothing that you are in just the right position for Christ to be your everything. 
We don't earn it. We don't do more and try harder. The gospel of Jesus Christ declares that God has made his perfect righteousness available to anyone. He says, here, receive this free gift and be saved. And we are. That's the basis on which we are accepted. Christ did the work. Christ bore the wrath. Christ earned God's favor, and it's given to us. It's the exact opposite of what other religions and even our own broken hearts say, right? There's nothing to do to earn it. We only come empty-handed and accept the gift that God grants us, Christ's righteousness on our behalf. When God looks at you, he doesn't see your sin. He sees his son, who was and is perfect, Matt Smethurst writes this. He says, As a believer in Jesus, I can know that on the cross he was treated as if he had lived my sinful life so that I might be treated as if I have lived his righteous life. Listen to that again. As a believer in Jesus, I can know that on the cross he was treated as if he had lived my sinful, broken, rebellious, disobedient, awful life so that I might be treated as if I have lived his perfectly obedient, righteous life. It almost sounds scandalous, right? Like something, something can't possibly be right about that. That Jesus would be treated as the sinner and I would be treated before God as the perfect holy one. But that's how good God is. And that's how deep his love runs for us. You are broken and hopeless in your sin and God just reaches down and he pulls you out of it and he gives you life that's more abundant than you could possibly ever imagine. Facet number one, Christ justifies anyone by faith. Facet number two, God is both just judge and gracious forgiver of sinners. Look with me at verses 25 and 26. It says this, God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. He did this to demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. He did it to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. Paul says that God presented Christ as the sacrifice of atonement in order to demonstrate his righteousness. The question that's being dealt with in these verses is this, how can God overlook sin and yet be just? Right? How can a judge be a, a good and just and right judge and yet not punish wrongdoing or wickedness or evil? Those are hard questions, right? Because Rightly, we all love to hear the stories of people coming to Jesus in unexpected ways, right? We hear about someone who's in prison for murdering someone's family member, and then they turn to Jesus, and they experience their lives being changed by the gospel, and they're forgiven by God, and then the family comes to them and forgives them too. And it's this amazing picture of the gospel, right? And we, we love to see those stories, and we love to read about them. But if we push it, it's a hard truth at times to grapple with because it's really easy when it's out there, right? When you hear about it across the country or across the world. But what about when it's right here? What about the person that hurt me? Or what about the person that hurt my kid, 
right? What do, what do we do with that? What about when you just deeply long for justice in this situation, but then the person turns to Jesus and they're forgiven, and then, and then you're like, but in eternity, they get glory just like I do, and, and they're looked at like Jesus, but, but they did this, this horrible thing. And I think if I'm honest, and, and if you're honest, there's part of us that really struggles with that, right? How, what do we do? Because there's people that we think that are too far gone who don't deserve forgiveness, and they've done these horrible things, and then we think to ourselves, but like if God forgives them, then are they really accountable for their sin? And is God really just in doing that? Because if God says that vengeance is mine, and, and he says that he's going to bring justice, and then it seems like he doesn't, and he grants forgiveness, then he's not really good, and he's not really reliable, and he's not really trustworthy, and we really shouldn't follow him, right? If that's who God is. And, and that's how we feel about some of this stuff. Like, I can be forgiven because my sin isn't that bad, but have you seen what he did to me? Or have you seen how she lived her whole life and then turned at the end? Well, here's the thing. Right? God is both good and true and just judge, and he's a gracious forgiver of sinners. Because God presented Christ, who went willingly as a sacrifice of atonement, he presented him as a sacrifice through the shedding of Jesus' blood, not yours. Right? And you deserve it. You deserve that punishment, and I, I deserve it. Right? We, we read the first few chapters of Romans, and we see that on us. We see that we deserve that punishment. But in spite of what we deserve, in spite of God being absolutely, perfectly just in pouring out his wrath on you and me for our rebellion and sin, he doesn't. Right? Instead, he poured it out on himself in the person of Jesus. And again, what kind of love is that? Right? Here's what I'm trying to get at in this point. All right, how can a just and good God forgive that person, right? How about, how about the, the serial child predator? How can God be just and forgive that kind of sin? How can God forgive a, a serial killer? Right? How can that happen? How can God be good and just and, and judge and yet forgive that kind of horrible sin? Right? Or, or, or how can the Holocaust happen? And, and concentration camps, and, and there are there are guards at concentration camps who did terrible atrocities. How can they turn to Jesus later in life and, and be forgiven for that? And, and, and how, you know, how does that work? Well, it's because in part of what John Murray says here. He says, God loved the objects of his wrath so much. The objects of his wrath, you, you and me, right? So much that he gave his own son to the end that, that he by his blood, by Jesus' blood, should make provision for the removal of his wrath. I don't know if you're familiar with Cory ten Boom or not, but Cory ten Boom uh, was, uh, lived during World War II, and she worked against the Nazis to hide Jews in her home. And when she was caught, she was sent to a concentration camp and stripped of her dignity, and she saw her father and her sister Betsy die, and she suffered more at the hands of other people than you or I could possibly imagine. Right? So hear, hear this story of uh, her encounter with forgiveness. She says this. She says, It was at a church service in Munich that I saw him. 
the former SS man who had stood guard at the shower door in the processing center at Ravensbrück. He was the first of our actual jailers that I had seen since that time. And suddenly it was all there, the room full of mocking men, the heaps of clothing, Betsy's pain-blanched face. He came up to me as the church was emptying, beaming and bowing. How grateful I am for your message, Fraulein, he said, to think that as you say, he has washed my sins away. His hand was thrust out to shake mine, and I, who preached so often to the people in Blumendahl the need to forgive, kept my hand at my side. Even as the angry, vengeful thoughts boiled through me, I saw the sin of them. Jesus Christ had died for this man. Was I going to ask for more? Lord Jesus, I prayed, forgive me and help me to forgive him. I tried to smile. I struggled to raise my hand. I could not. I felt nothing not the slightest spark of warmth or charity. And so again, I breathed a silent prayer. Jesus, I cannot forgive him. Give me your forgiveness. As I took his hand, the most incredible thing happened. From my shoulder along my arm and through my hand, a current seemed to pass from me to him, while into my heart sprang a love for this stranger that almost overwhelmed me. And so I discovered that it is not on our forgiveness any more than on our goodness that the world's healing hinges, but on his. When he tells us to love our enemies, he gives, along with the command, the love itself. We all deserve wrath and punishment and condemnation for our sin. But listen to this. Listen, God loves you so much that he took the punishment on your behalf. He loves you so much that he took the punishment for you. Look, I get it, right? This is a hard facet to wrap our minds around at times. And, and I think a big reason for that is we don't really understand the reality, the true reality of God's holiness. We're tempted, uh, on one hand, um, to think that God didn't need to punish sin, right? Or we're tempted, on the other, to think God shouldn't forgive. But here's the truth. God is holy and pure beyond our wildest imaginations. And we are sinful, deeply sinful, beyond what we can imagine. And those two things cannot coexist in those states. We cannot exist with God for eternity stained by sin. It's just not possible. He's too holy to exist in the presence of sin. And so two options existed the moment that sin entered the world. God could have said, forget it. I'm done. They're awful, right? And, and he could have pulled his presence from the world and said, they reject me, they rebel, I, I, I'm done. And he could have left humanity to sit in their garbage and sin for all of eternity, first on earth and then in hell. Right? God could have done that because he is so holy that sin can't exist where he is. That's option one. But then option two was that God could do something about that sin. And we read here that he did. Right? He did the most loving thing he possibly could have. He became the satisfaction to his own just and holy wrath. Christ, being God, hung on that cross and satisfied the due penalty for your sin and mine. Those are the two options, right? And praise God that option two happened because whatever we do, however we minimize our own sin or minimize God's holiness and we let the doubts of did he really have to do that creep into our minds, the truth of scripture is that this is who our perfect God is, right? He's perfectly loving and kind and gracious and merciful and he's also 
perfectly angry and wrathful, and he will not let sin go unpunished. But in his kindness and his mercy, instead of punishing us, for those who come to him empty-handed, he rescues them by pouring out his wrath on Jesus. God is a just judge. His wrath must be satisfied. He's too holy for it to not be. And he is also a gracious forgiver. And to satisfy that need for justice in order to forgive sinners, he punished himself on our behalf. The love and forgiveness and justice of God met at the cross of Jesus Christ. What kind of love is that? What kind of God loves his people so well? Facet number two, God is both just judge and gracious forgiver of sinners. And finally, facet number three, salvation empowers obedience. Read verses 27 to 31 with me. It says, Where then is boasting? It is excluded. Because of what law? The law that requires works? No, because of the law that requires faith. For we maintain that a person is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. Or is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles too? Yes, of Gentiles too, since there is only one God who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through that same faith. Do we then nullify the law by this faith? Not at all. Rather, we uphold the law. Paul says, look, if you're as sinful as I've said you are, and you are, and if your salvation is freely given based on the work of Christ, and it is, then what in the world do you have to boast in? In the keeping of the law? No, you, you can't do it. You, you've tried and, and you're terrible at it. Well, in your heritage, whether you're Jewish or Gentile, well, no, why would you boast in that? It doesn't make any difference. You're all sinners and you need a righteousness given to you. So then if none of it matters anyway, if there's nothing to boast in and there's nothing to earn, then do we just throw out the law? No way, Paul says. No way. We uphold the law. We do what God says. We conform our will to his. We let him dictate what's right and wrong. We're motivated by his deep love for us and his mercy towards us and the sacrificing of his own life to obey him. Right? This is classic pushback from cynical people, isn't it? Well, if salvation is free, then what's the point? If I can't uphold this thing anyway, then why even try? If Jesus was going to forgive me no matter what I do, well then, what's the point of trying to live like he says, right? I, I can, as they say, eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die, and whatever we do, we're going to be forgiven anyway. Well, to that attitude, Paul would have some strong words, right? And he does later in the book, but it's something along the lines of, how dare you make a mockery of the cross and the free gift of salvation? Right? You've been given new life. You've been given freedom. You've been brought out of darkness and into light. You have, apart from a single ounce of your own doing, been saved from the penalty and power of your sin. And now you want to spit in the face of God and ignore his perfect law so that you can do what you think is right and live by some version of the motto, if it feels good, do it? No way. No way, right? God saved you. He's rescued you. He's just in that he punishes sin and he's forgiver in that he punished himself in Jesus for your sake. He makes this salvation available freely to anyone who will turn to him with empty hands and cry out, I need you. 
Live like it. Live like your life matters to God. Live like you're walking out your days before him in gratitude for what he's done. Live out your salvation before men so they might see the change that's happened, so they might see the insanity of the cross and the way that you've been saved apart from anything that you bring to the table. Titus chapter 2 says it like this. It says, For the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age while we wait for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good." Your salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, does not nullify God's perfect law. No, it empowers you to obey and reflect his goodness, free from the pressures of having to uphold that law to try and earn something, to try and earn your salvation, right? Instead, you can walk it out to the best of your ability, filled with the Spirit, living a life of gratitude for what God has done in order to bring him glory, not to earn your salvation. The gospel of Jesus Christ is a breath of fresh air. All right, no longer do we need to subscribe to the world's motto of do more, be better, try harder, and it'll all be good. Right? No, we, we come empty-handed to Jesus, who accomplished what we could never hope to. You might be feeling the sting of burning in your lungs as you sit here this morning. Right, maybe you've never experienced God's forgiveness and, and you're being held under the water, unable to breathe by the terrible weight of your own sin, of your own rebellion, of your own striving to earn something in this life. Or maybe you've been walking with Jesus and you've tasted that fresh air. You've, you've breathed it in, but for some silly reason, you're tempted to stick your head back under that water, to let your lungs burn all over again without all the free oxygen that's available to you. Well, wherever you are this morning, whatever you're struggling with, come up for a breath of fresh air. Turn to Jesus. Turn to Jesus because in Christ, you have all you need for life and salvation and it's all given to you for free. Let's pray.